Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. We were happy ones. I'd just gotten my first real salary job, and my wife was pregnant with a little one on the way. For once in our life, we weren't worried about money, and I even had some set aside to make all the preparations ahead of time. We converted my study into a nursery and painted the walls sky blue for our little boy. She added trains of yellow ducklings following their mother, and I was in charge of the white puffy clouds. The only thing I knew how to paint we had a closet that we couldn't close because it was so full of diapers, stuffed animals, children's books, and toys. We weren't intentionally hoarding, but every time we went out, my wife would see something that made her heart melt, and I was so happy to see her so happy that I never thought twice. It felt like we had waited our whole lives for a day which never came. At first, the doctor thought the pockets in his brain were temporary abnormalities that would disappear before birth. But less than a week later, we received the diagnosis of trisomy 18, a fatal chromosomal defect. We were given the choice whether to terminate the pregnancy or let the baby be born only to hold him once, to memorize every detail of his face, the feel of his skin, the look in his eyes, before we had to say goodbye. My wife wanted to go through with it, but a few late nights later I convinced her it would be easier to never see his face at all. I was always the more pragmatic of the two of us. I thought we could just try again and that in a few years this would be nothing but a speed bump on the road to our happy family. Fool that I am, I made the mistake of trying to cheer her up by saying we already did most of the work by preparing the nursery and all the things. I guess I didn't understand how much harder this was on her than it was on me, but I found out soon enough. The next day when I came home from work, I got the message loud and clear. Everything we'd bought for the baby was piled in the yard and burned, with only a few charred book spines and loose buttons amidst the ash to reveal what they had once been. I didn't care about that, though. I found my wife sitting in the nursery with a kitchen knife at her feet, her head buried in her knees. There were long gouges in the wall through all the little ducks, each puffy cloud shredded into loose hanging tatters. She was clutching a doll of the little prince, blonde and blue-eyed and charred at the corners. There were burns on her hands, and I can only assume that she impulsively saved it from the fire at the last second. She was mumbling and incoherent for a while, but I got the impression that she hadn't forgiven herself for not holding her baby, even once. I helped her into bed, but she wouldn't let go of the doll for a second. We talked a long time, we cried a long time, we talked again, and by the early hours of the morning, we both had a sense that the worst was behind us. My wife promised that she would be alright, and fool that I am, I believed her. I resolved not to bring up having another kid, not until she did. I was going to let her deal with this in her own way, on her own time. That meant letting her sleep in every morning when I went to work, and finding her still in bed every night when I got home. That meant watching her once luxurious brown hair grow greasy and tangled, without showering, watching her gain weight as she took out her paint on cartons of Ben and Jerry's and family-sized bags of snicker bars. 
Apart from that, she didn't act too depressed though. She always made an effort to engage me with cheerful conversation, and I still believed we would get through this and be alright. The only new habit that I had trouble moving past was the way her prayers changed at night. She didn't pray for her to get better or anything about the future. Her prayers were always about the boy who never came. She had this notion that he was happy somewhere and growing up in his own way, in his own place. And she prayed for him in that other life. And every time she prayed, she prayed to what she called her little god. The charmed doll which she'd never let out of her sight. Sometimes I'd wake up in the night and hear her whispering to it muttering thanks for keeping her safe and watching over her little boy wherever he was. That was uncomfortable for me, but it was her process and I let her walk through it. Over time, the nature of the prayers began to change though, and before long she was saying things like, next time around and my future boy. Those comments made me feel hopeful that she might finally be ready to give our family another try. And there were other things she said that made me less certain though, she kept asking the doll if it promised. Other times, she'd get angry at it, and when I asked her to explain, she'd get defensive and close up, only hinting that the doll was lying to her. Even worse were the times when she affirmed a promise she made to her little god. These usually in furtive whispers when she thought I was asleep. She'd swear over and over again that she was going to follow through, only to ask over and over if it would do the same. I didn't want to intrude or make her defensive and I never found out what that promise was. Through it all, she was putting the nursery back together and repainting the walls, though. She began taking better care of herself, although she'd still put on a lot of weight. Not long after the doll was gone, and that was the best sign yet, that things were going back to normal. We were being intimate again for the first time since the incident, and I thought life had found a way to endure. The day after she'd gotten rid of the doll, I got a call while at work. It was the hospital. It was my wife. How fast could I get there? I couldn't make sense of what they were saying. Something about a fire. But I hauled ass to get there and found out soon enough. I hardly even recognized her for the burns. Every inch of skin either red or blistered or charred so black I could see it crumbling off before my eyes. The doctors told me a neighbor had called to report smoke coming from the house. But my wife's condition was the only trace of the fire except for the blackened ceiling directly above her. I heard the phrase spontaneous human combustion more than once. They told me that they didn't think they could save her, but chances were good of saving the child. I told them there had to be a mistake, that it had only been two months since we lost the last child, and there was no way for her to be pregnant. My words seemed to get lost in all the rush and bustle, though, and I was swept through one waiting room to the next, one medical form to the next, until before I had even had time to process what was happening, I was told that the boy would live. And every time I asked about my wife, the doctor just repeated that my son was going to be okay. My son. The blonde-haired boy with blue eyes. The boy who looked nothing like me, and nothing like my wife. But who looked a whole lot like the little god who had made a promise to her. There were two of us yesterday. And there will be two of us tomorrow. But today it feels like there are less than one. I hate myself for feeling so helpless. I miss my wife who would have known what this meant. And I don't trust the little god who sleeps alone in the nursery downstairs. I read once that dreams shouldn't be taken seriously. 
that they're nothing but our unconscious mind interpreting random brain activity which happens naturally during sleep. But if all that noise and color and life is just coming from my brain, then how can two people share the same dream? I didn't recognize the other person in my dream, but I saw him in such vivid detail that it was hard to imagine him not being real. I'd guess he was about my age, in his late 20s, thick curly brown hair, with broad, blue-tinged glasses perched upon a wide nose. His face was covered in rough black stubble which progressed partway down his neck. I could see every individual hair, the pores of his skin, and the slight chip on one of his front teeth. I could see him in such great detail in my dream. I stood directly over him while he lay in a shallow pool of water. It was just deep enough to cover his face and his eyes were wide, and his eyes were open. I remember that he tried to speak to me, but the water filled his mouth and I couldn't understand what he was trying to say. Logically, he should have stood up if he wanted to talk, and logically, I should have helped him up if I wanted to listen. But it was just a dream, so I just kept asking him to repeat himself and he just kept on trying to talk, growing more and more frustrated the longer this went on. It wasn't until I was about to wake up that I realized my foot was on his chest, and that I'd been holding him down the whole time. The dream dissipated within moments of waking, as usually happens with me, and I didn't think anything more of it until noon the next day. That's when I saw the same man, looking exactly as I'd dreamt him, except that his face was cleanly shaven this time. I was walking with my boss down the hallway of my office building, when he comes around the corner and passes us from the other direction. I guess I must have been staring a bit because he slows down as we pass, and for a moment we both stop in the middle of the hallway and stare at each other. I couldn't think of any pretense to talk to him though. It's a big company and most of us don't know the people who work in the other departments. Besides, my boss was with me and I didn't want to say anything weird so I just kept walking. I did look back for a second before I turned the corner though just to see that he was still standing in the middle of the hallway, still staring at me over his shoulder. By the end of the day, I decided that I was overthinking things. We worked at the same place, so I must have seen him once, and then forgotten until he showed up in my dream. And it didn't have to be weird. I'd probably look back too if someone was staring at me like I'd done to him. Fast forward to the next night, when I had the same dream. Only this time he was cleanly shaven, just like I'd seen him last. He wasn't as calm this time either. He must have remembered that I was holding him down because he started thrashing in the water almost immediately. The water boiled and churned with the energy of his gargled shouting. I was afraid that if he got up he'd attack me, so I did the only thing I could think of and held him down. I held him down and I waited for what seemed like hours until his violent motions finally subsided. By the end of the dream he wasn't trying to talk or move anymore, and when I woke up, I could still remember his sullen, angry glare. I was almost afraid to go to work the next day, but took an extra long shower for me to convince myself that I was being stupid. I usually have a pretty precisely timed morning routine, so that was enough to ensure I was late. My boss is pretty chill and that wouldn't have been a big deal if it weren't for the guy waiting for me. I didn't see him until he rapped on my driver's side window with his knuckle shortly after I'd parked. We stared at each other through the window which felt chillingly reminiscent of the thin layer of water which divided us in my dream. The same sullen glare, the same instinct that he was going to attack me the moment we stood on equal footing. But of course this was the real world, 
and I'd already spent the whole morning convincing myself how stupid I was for giving credence to a dream. I took a deep breath and rolled the window down. Yeah? I asked him, trying to play it cool. Do I know you? Why didn't you let me get up? He asked at once without the slightest pretense. I was drowning, and you knew I wanted to get out of there. So why were you holding me down? I couldn't decide whether to acknowledge that I knew what he was talking about. I wanted to tell him that it was just a dream, that I was scared, that it was somehow his fault for being underwater in the first place. I must have panicked though, because the only thing I said was, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I tried to open my car door to get out, but the second it started to open he slammed it shut again. His face was getting bright and flushed and he looked equally capable of screaming at me or bursting into tears. How's it feel being trapped, huh? He said. I tried opening the door again, but it was my arm against his whole body weight leaning against my car, and I couldn't budge him. I was drowning. I don't care why you were doing it, I just want to hear you say it. I want you to admit that you were doing it to me. You're crazy, man. Get away from my car. I started to roll up my window. I wouldn't have to admit it if I could just wait him out. Sooner or later, someone else would come through the parking lot and they'd help me. They'd call security. He'd be dragged away or fired. I didn't care what happened to him, as long as I didn't have to admit that I knew what he was talking about. His arm lashed out to block the closing window and he snatched at me. I just kept closing the window until it caught his arm to prevent him from getting to me. I figured he'd retreat at the last second, but he didn't. His arm was caught by the rising glass and his face kept getting redder. He started yelling and cursing, and then I was yelling, demanding he pull his arm out of there even though it must have been pinned. He wanted me to reverse the window, but I didn't because I knew he'd grab me the second he had the space to move. I was freaking out, and the only thing I could think to do was keep holding the button, putting more and more pressure on his arm until, all at once the window shattered, a thousand cracks and fractures appearing from nowhere. He screamed and ripped his arm away and the whole window bent and wrenched free with him. A second later, we were staring at each other through the open window, him red-faced and snarling and me terrified out of my mind. I hit the car into reverse and lurched out of the parking spot, not looking back until I was out onto the street. He wasn't chasing after me or anything, thank God, but I could still see him in the rearview mirror. I left him and my broken window in the parking lot and drove straight home calling my boss to tell him I wouldn't be in that day. I've been pacing my room ever since I got home, unsure how I can ever go back to work and face him again. I'm seriously considering quitting my job, but I don't think that that will even help, because whatever I do, I can't erase the last thing he shouted after me as I pulled out of the parking lot. See you tonight, asshole. Let me begin with a disclaimer. I'm a vegetarian and the idea of any human eating the carcass of another sentient animal is absolutely disgusting to me. It would be one thing if we had to kill to survive, but that isn't the case for the vast majority living in a modern society. The only reason we still kill is because we're bored. We're bored of how our food tastes, and that boredom is a death sentence. We're bored of shooting animals in games, so we go and shoot one in real life. We even kill each other because we've gotten bored of trying to achieve our goals peacefully. I try not to be preachy with my convictions though, so when my wife asked me to pick up some beef for her dinner party, I played the dutiful soldier. 
I shot down to a local butcher and tried my best not to breathe for the duration. This was the first time I'd ever actually gone to a dedicated butcher, and walking inside felt like I'd just stepped down the throat of a living animal. Ribeye steaks, brisket pastrami, beef tongue salami, corned brisket, all heaped in piles behind the glass. Canadian bacon, castler pork, peppered cutlets, all blending together in a great red wall. Dangling chains of sausages, salamis, bologna, hung up like Christmas lights all around me. The butcher must have noticed how overwhelmed I was, because he came around the counter to help me. He was a kindly old man wearing a clean white apron, and he gave me a short tour of his shop. He pointed out a hundred different cuts of meat, but I'd never tried any of them and had no idea which I was supposed to get. He laughed with good nature at my confusion, and ordered to pick his favorite one for me. He laughed with good nature at my confusion, and offered to pick his favorite one for me, and I was quick to accept and get out of there. I don't know what kind of meat I actually bought. It looked bright and bloody and the paper package only said grade A meat. My wife wasn't impressed though. She lifted the corner of the paper and took one sniff before blanching. She was mad that I didn't notice how awful it reeked, but in my defense, I thought that's how meat was supposed to smell. We didn't have time before our party to pick up anything else though, so we just left it in the fridge and scraped together the best impromptu dinner we could. The grade A meat sat in the fridge for about a week because we didn't want to waste it, but by then neither of us could take the smell anymore. We compromised by tossing it into the alley behind our house for the stray dogs that nosed through our trash. It was gone the next morning and a big scruffy black lab was hanging around so I'm sure he enjoyed it. I went back to the butcher store to try and get a refund, but there was a different man working there and all he'd give me was store credit. Whatever, better than nothing. I picked up some other random pieces to give to the stray dogs. This butcher, a round mustached man, told me he throws out a lot of scraps every day and that I can pick them up for the dogs every week if I wanted. It seemed better than letting them go to waste, so I began this weekly tradition. The odd thing was that I'd never actually see the dogs get the scraps. I'd put them in a bowl in the alley, but no matter how long I watched, I never saw one of the dogs come by. The meat would always be gone by the next morning though, so I just assumed that it was going to the right place. My wife observed that the black lab hadn't been back though, neither had the little terrier we saw sniffing around one day. It was weird, because once a stray dog finds a reliable source of free food they're unlikely to ever forget. We kept seeing dogs in the alley behind our house, but we never seemed to see the same dog twice. A few weeks into this routine and the mustached butcher A few weeks into this routine and the mustached butcher asked to see pictures of the strays eating his scraps. I told him that I'd never actually seen them eating it, and he got all huffy saying a wild animal was probably stealing it. He didn't want to give me any more after that, and we had a bit of an argument about it. He thought I was trying to scam him, and even went so far as to deny that I'd ever bought meat from him before, telling me there was no old man who worked at his shop. More to prove him wrong than anything else, I made it my mission to prove where the meat was going. I went as far as to buy a big fatty New York steak with the bones still in as bait, then set it out beside a battery-powered lamp so I could watch. I found a spot that I could see from my bedroom window, and I glued myself there waiting for something to happen. About an hour into my vigil, my wife tells me I'm watching the wrong spot. 
I tell her that's impossible because I'm staring right at the bowl I put under the lamp, and she tells me there are some dogs going at meat on the other end of the house. It was black outside, but I had my phone for light and could hear the dogs growling and yipping ahead. Glad to have my proof, I had my camera and its flash ready as I rounded the corner. My first surprise was seeing the bright, bloody red slab of meat we'd tossed out the first day. The color was the only recognizable thing about it, though, because it was now several feet across and at least two feet high. There had been two dogs fighting over it, one ugly bulldog and hyper-aggressive chihuahua that barely touched the ground. The chihuahua was getting the upper hand, and I just managed to get the older dog to back off as I arrived. The chihuahua had its back turned toward the meat so it could focus on the other dog. It didn't see the meat moving. Not like a natural creature, but swelling and oozing, contracting and expanding to drag itself across the ground. I started shouting to scare off the dog and get my wife to come see, but the chihuahua only turned to snarl at me instead. The slab of meat reared into the air and slammed down on the small dog with a wet thud and a high-pitched squeal. The dog was utterly engulfed, and all I could hear from it were the sound of snapping bones and the wet tearing of meat. I tried to save the dog by grabbing the meat and dragging it away. My finger slipped along its slimy surface and I had to drop my phone to try and get a better grip. The tighter I held, the more my fingers burned, until the corrosive pain was too much and I had to let go. The bulldog was barking like mad now and my wife was shouting back from the house. The meat reacted by swiftly dispersing, ripping itself to shreds like ground beef while each piece wormed its way into the ground. I grabbed my phone again to try and take the picture, but my fingers were slippery with blood and I couldn't operate the camera before the thing had vanished. All that was left of the chihuahua was a red smear on the ground. I told my wife that I'd just slipped and cut my hands, and I hurried inside to wash off. I couldn't bring myself to tell her what I'd seen, but I'm writing this now to explain that what my thoughts and words have failed to do so far. I don't know if she'll believe it, but I have to try. If this doesn't convince her that meat is murder, I don't know what will. New on Stream: Darwin's Theory of Evolution. A scientific breakthrough, but 1920s Tennessee wasn't ready for it. It became the Bible versus evolution. Followed a heated trial that changed American education forever on Monkey in the Middle. And it's the country's deadliest highway. There were something like 178 accidents in a two-year period. Don't miss the most dangerous road in America. Watch now on CuriosityStream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com.